Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, and if I may, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask our, uh, our producer, Noel, to uh, put on a little spooky music. And I'm going to uh, read a quote from H.P. Lovecraft. Wait, hold on. Let me turn on the light. Because oh, we, yes. we are submerged in complete darkness right now. Oh, great. It's, it's a little weird. Wait, hold on. reading this really difficult, but okay. okay. there. All right. This is from Lovecraft's uh, 1927 work, Supernatural Horror in Literature. Children will always be afraid of the dark, and men with minds sensitive to hereditary impulse will always tremble at the thought of the hidden and fathomless worlds of strange life which may pulsate in the gulfs beyond the stars, or press hideously upon our own globe in unholy dimensions which only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. That was beautiful. Oh, okay. And if you guys haven't guessed out there, we are diving way into the deep dark in this episode. And I, I love that because it really does evoke the sort of primal fear that darkness has, particularly for children. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about this topic is that light and dark, those are the cycles that have defined our lives, that have defined life uh, for the most part for mm-hmm. so long. I mean, Life here on Earth exists within these cycles of light and dark, and that has played into uh, the evolutionary ascent of uh, of almost all organisms. And it's so important to us that we have woven it into this symbolic level, right? I mean, the yin and yang of dark and light, these opposites, which really represent these ideas of not just values, but of different spheres that we inhabit. Because on one level, uh, the, the the world of light the world, the sunlit world. I mean, that's an area of the known, and then the world of darkness. That is an an area of the, if not the unknown, at least the uncertain, the uh, the, the possible, right. the sort of the quantum state where the darkness can be simply emptiness. The darkness can be something you could trip over. It could be a thief. It could be a monster. There's there's room for just about any fear within that uh, undefined space of shadow. And that undefined space of shadow is largely what occupied the. The human experience, in fact, if you look at archaeological evidence that suggests that, you know, just 400,000 years ago or so, early humans mastered fire. Before that, what would you do? I mean, you didn't you didn't really have that access to something that could glow and provide some sort of illumination in the dark. Now, skip ahead to today where we have the possibility for 24 hour lighted environments and we kind of take that for granted that darkness really did rule the night. Indeed. I mean, for the longest, to borrow a phrase from historian William Manchester, you had a world uh, lit only by fire, right? Or at least a, a night lit only by fire. So you even if you had you had fire, you had candles, you had torches, you had campfires, eventually you get gaslighting uh, and, uh, and and lanterns and other uh, luminary innovations. But, but for the most part, you're sort of carving out a little bit. You're rec- reclaiming a little bit of the night, but it's not quite as good as the daylight and you're still surrounded by all these shadows and and just gulfs of impenetrable darkness right until you had like a a really good um widespread source of artificial light all you had was dying embers to light the space around you so what would you do you would submit to that dark and most of us would go to sleep and that brings up this idea which we've touched upon before Mm -hmm. of two-phase sleep 
Yeah, and this is pretty simple. What happens when it gets dark? And again, you may have some 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 light at your disposal. You may have a campfire at your disposal, but your abilities are greatly reduced. So you go to sleep. You simply call it a day. Except uh, something happens about uh, about halfway through, right? You wake because, according to historian Roger Eckrich, who published a book on the matter called At Day's Close, Night and Times Past, which, by the way, was a culmination of his 16 years of research that uncovered more than 500 references to a segmented sleeping pattern. He found that you would wake in this 14-hour sleep pattern for maybe an hour or two, get up, tend to your animals, do a little light housekeeping in the moonlight, have sex, lay in bed thinking, smoking a pipe, or gossiping with your bedfellows. In fact, and we've mentioned this before, I love this, uh, it's widely known that Benjamin Franklin would light a candle mm-hmm. and take cold air baths, reading naked in a chair. Indeed, that was his uh, his strategy for this uh, this period between the two sleeps. And uh, w- one thing I love about this is it, it also really defines that idea about the middle of the night, right? Because for us, the middle of the night is typically more a situation of staying up late enough for it to be the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you go back to, to this this earlier mode of sleep, and it's uh, it's not merely a stage of lateness, but a true in between. That uh, this this little space, this little uh, clutch of the darkness that you end up occupying between these two dominant phases of sleep. Now, in Stephen Johnson's uh, book, How We Got to Now, in the PBS series, there is a section on light, and he talks about this. He talks with historian Craig Koslowski, who says that, you know, our kind of nighttime uh, awakenings now, or even insomnia, may be attributed to this original 14-hour sleep phase. In other words, it's kind of normal that we get up sometimes at, you know, midnight or 2 o'clock in the morning, and we can't get back to sleep for a while. Yeah, I mean, that's the biological norm. That's what we evolved to do. And it's only been in the last uh, 150 years, 200 years, that we've really carved out a substantial uh, zone of the night and, and relit it. Uh, according to Stephen Johnson in the, in the book, uh, How We Got to Now in that uh, that chapter on light, points out that today's night sky burns 6,000 times brighter than it did a mere 150 years ago. So it's, it's, transformed, it's transformed the way we sleep, mm-hmm. uh, the way we work. And uh, and that's, of course, spiraled off, as Johnson explains in his book, into uh, the creation of global networks of communication uh, and, and, and a lot of our modern technological world. Yeah, because all of a sudden you have improved street lighting. You had the advent of, of social opportunities at the in during the evening. You have, you know, restaurants and cafes to go to. And that causes a shift in people's sleep patterns, because before that, according to Koslovsky, you had associations uh, with the night that were not so good. We're mm-hmm. talking about before the 17th century. He says the night was a place populated by people of disrepute, criminals, prostitutes, and drunks. And he said even the wealthy who could afford candlelight had better things to spend their money on than burning their candles all night long. There really wasn't any prestige or social value in staying up all night. Yeah, I mean, night falls, you lock the door because the only people out there are going to be people that are probably up to no good. You don't want anything to do with that. And uh, the the walls to the city, if you have walls around your uh, your the area in which you live, those are going to close because anyone entering the city in the night, again, up to no good. And hey, don't forget about those nighttime predators of the animal elk, right? That's right. I mean, it takes us back to our primeval self, right? Uh, the idea that uh, that there are predators out there that will eat us, and the night belongs to to those creatures, not to us. 
Um, and you know, you can spiral off from that into a lot of our, um, uh, our fears of the, of the, di- of the dark and, and concerns about the night and, uh, and that basic, uh, type one error in cognition that we make when we believe a connection is really there and, uh, uh, when it isn't, we're hardwired to make type one errors because uh, a, a type two error, a false negative, gets you killed. Always better to assume that there are predators out there in the dark. Always better to assume there are thieves and criminals and and whatever out there in the shadows because it's a safer bet. Now we'll talk later about how those type one and two cognition errors can uh, kind of mess us up here in our modern world. But for now, let's try to figure out why we respond so greatly to light and dark in the first place. And in order to do that, we got to look at our old friends on the tree of life. I'm talking about single-celled bacteria. Because, again, this comes back to the very the basic nature of the evolution of life, right? Life evolved on a world that experiences uh, periodic clockwork periods of night and day, of light and darkness. And so... Life itself is taking form within these environmental constraints. Yep, and one of these constraints is a circadian rhythm, which tracks a standard Earth day's 24-hour cycle. It's the secret to why we can adjust to different time zones and their accompanying sleep patterns. And according to Annalie Newitt's writing for io9 in the article, This is Why You Can't Sleep, quote, it's likely that circadian rhythms evolved in cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, over Three billion years ago. And so you would say, OK, fine. Why, but why did that blue green algae need to have some sort of circadian rhythm? And the answer is that it's all about energy because single cell bacteria, they need energy. But to get it, their bodies had to carry out two different chemical processes that interfered with each other. So the bacteria began keeping time by tracking the sun. So when it was light outside, the cyanobacteria would get energy from photosynthesis and when it was dark, they could get energy by sequestering nitrogen. But if they, these two processes were done simultaneously, they would cancel each other out. But sequentially, keeping track of light and dark and when to do these chemical processes allowed a maximum gathering of energy. Now, the other idea is that at that time, there were life forms who shared the same environment. And this was also a way to compete with each other for food. So some evolved to feed during the day and others to feed at night. And then you, you go forward and you have us bipedal energy hogs yes. really taking advantage of this whole circadian rhythm thing. And of course, this brings us back to our old friend, the pineal gland, which we, uh, we did an entire episode about, about the pineal gland. I think we called it, uh, my third eye, pineal optics. Um, and, uh, certainly go back and listen to that one if you want a deeper dive into this, but, uh, to, just to refresh, Pineal gland is a small organ shaped like a pine cone, hence the name, and it's located on the midline attached to the posterior end of the roof of the third ventricle in the brain. Uh, in humans, it's roughly one centimeter in length, and the pineal is composed of pinealocytes and uh, glial cells. In uh, older animals, the pineal often contains calcium deposits or brain sand. Now, it's it's not an eye. It's not a true eye, but it is, uh, it does have optical properties and it does, and light does play a role in what it does. So light exposure to the retina, uh, relays to the hypothalamus. And this is an area in the brain, uh, that, uh, is involved in the, in the coordination of biological clock signals. Uh, and fibers from the hypothalamus, uh, descend to the spinal cord and project to the superior uh, cervical ganglia from which, uh, post ganglionic neutrons ascend back to the pineal gland. So, 
the pineal transduces signals from the sympathetic nervous system into a hormonal signal. Uh, and it produces several important hormones, including melatonin in response to environmental lighting. So the human pineal regulates the rhythm that beats out the biological clock by secreting a substance, melatonin, according to the light stimulus received through the eyes and from the skin. Yeah, the pineal gland acts as a control tower for the biological clock inside of us, directing some body functions like sleep based on the data that it's getting back from these light sensing skills. And I love this idea that this third eye does have all the components of an eye, but it's not an eye, and it is taking in all of these environmental cues in order to tell the body, hey, time to wake up or time to go to sleep. Now, um, Allison Loudermilk, who is uh, one of our senior editors here, had brought up the point before, and I think she was like talking about whales at the Georgia Aquarium who are affected by daylight savings time. Uh, she brought up the point of what what would happen if you weren't exposed to light at all. Yeah, this brings to mind some uh, research from 2011 uh, uh, into the nature of the uh, Mexican blind cave fish. Uh, now, despite what the name uh, would have you think, uh, this species exists in both subterranean and surface populations. Now, the surface fish swim with the benefit of sighted eyes, uh, while the uh, their underground kin uh, go about blindly. Uh, in laboratory populations, this, uh, in this uh, 2011 study, the surface fish slept while the cavers darted around all night. Uh, the researchers discovered that the differing sleep uh, behavior hinged on a few dominant gene mutations that became fixed in the cave populations when they took to the dark. After all, as we've discussed in our Troglophana episode, uh, food is scarce in uh, subterranean environments, particularly in subterranean waters, so natural selection favors the scavengers who are willing to work long, long hours. Um, this uh, research also brings to mind uh, the 1995 uh, account of researcher Christina Lanzoni, who spent a whopping 269 days of solitary confinement in the subterranean underlab uh, in the uh, Frasassi Caves in central Italy. Now, granted, she didn't have to swim about all night scavenging for, scavenging for food, but uh, her sleep patterns altered significantly. On average, uh, Lanzoni's waking days stretched on for 54 to 56 hours, followed by 14 to 16 hours of sleep. Furthermore, that sleep was much more like that of an infant as she'd fall immediately into REM sleep and dream of wide open spaces. So um, what I like about those two studies is that they they do really drive home how crucial light and dark um, is to an organism, be it it an organism's... uh, evolutionary advancement into a into a, a realm of darkness or its continued existence in a realm of light or just taking a single organism and taking it out of that uh, that flow of light and dark and putting it into a subterranean world now in those examples those are those are all organisms who uh, could detect light mm-hmm. but the question becomes what if you were never indoctrinated into light in the first place we're going to take a quick break when we get back we're going to talk about blindness We're going to talk about 24-hour sleep-wake disorder and fear of the dark. All right, we're back, and we're discussing darkness, what it's like to to live as an organism in a world of light and dark and how light and dark rules us at a very basic biological level. But what about those of us whose ability to perceive light and darkness is significantly degraded or 
erased almost completely, at least at the, at the retina level. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment, about people who are blind and, and what their sleep patterns are like. But first, you have to kind of go back to the whole circadian rhythm in the first place. And it turns out that most of us have body clocks that run a little longer than 24 hours. And this can sometimes lead to something called the 24-hour sleep-wake disorder, or non-24. And according to the non-24 site, if your body clock is, say, 24.5 hours long today, you're running a half hour behind. Tomorrow, you're an hour behind, Mm -hmm. and so on, until your natural rhythms have you sleeping during the day and awake at night. Now, this can go on and on and on. So what basically what this um, is saying is that you could go to sleep at 10 o'clock every night. But if you have this non-24 disorder, you know, you might fall asleep at 1030 and then 11 and then so on and so forth. And it just keeps pushing that needle of your body clock around this 24 hour cycle. And in some cases, it takes up to, say, one and a half months to get back to where you are synced up to, say, a normal cycle that the rest of the world, at least your time zone, is on. I feel like this this matches up uh, at a symbolic level with, with pretty much everything uh, in my modern life, and imagine with a lot of people's, that you have within the, the, the calendar year, within the, the, the confines of clock time, you have X amount of time to spend on a given thing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that thing actually takes X.5 <laughs> um, to to complete, and it all adds up, and you end up uh, at just sort of uh, n- not sticking to any particular schedule, but just sort of falling through it in this with this uh, amorphous sleep uh, cycle, with uh, an amorphous attention to detail in various uh, uh, corners of your life. Um, and and I feel like my own just uh, my own sleep uh, sometimes falls like this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not never never just like go to sleep at this time, wake up at this. It's like like it'll it'll sort of flow and shift throughout a given week. Well, as a former insomniac sufferer, I try to keep really uh, close to the times that I fall asleep and wake up because that helps a lot in terms of regulation. But I understand what you mean. I read nine twenty four, and I was like, well, this is this does kind of feel like it, sleep can become this very random thing, and as you say, something that you fall through mm-hmm. as opposed to just being completely synced up on. And it turns out that among people who are totally blind. As many as 70% suffer from the effects of non-24, which again comes about because of this light of light perception, or more specifically, the transmission of ocular light from the retina to their circadian clock that is impaired. So you don't have that sort of reset button and you don't have that sort of environmental cue of, hey, let's wake up. And, and it can be much more prevalent among the blind. So, you know, we talked about that, this this idea that it can take a month and a half to get synced back up to that cycle that at least your time zone's on. Imagine the sort of chronic sleep disorder that would be in place and all the symptoms that would follow. It would feel like you had jet lag every single day of your life. Yeah, I agree. That's that's the way I felt before I had when I had uh, unaddressed uh, sleep problems a while back. Yeah, and in these cases, it's you know extremely difficult to to be on time and stay awake mm-hmm. at work to attend school, pursue interests, uh, keep your social life intact. And so there aren't many things uh, that you can do for this. However, some people have found limited relief through treatment with a synthetic version of melatonin mm-hmm. that will sometimes help. Uh, to drag forward the body clock's reset time by creating that chemical pulse to the circadian um, body clock. 
But again, this is limited and not everybody responds to it. Yeah. But still, the, the synthetic melatonin is key, much better than wandering around in the middle of the night trying to suck the pineal glands out of people's, out of your victim's skulls. Yeah, there are yeah. only so many air baths that you can take. Really, in the night. really, it's true. But I mean, that's one of the things about sleep problems, right? There's so many things you have to do in, during the course of a day, and here you are awake in the dead of night, in the dark, and this is, and you, and you, it's not only is it not the time to do most of those things, but even, even the, the things that you could conceivably do, that you could turn on a light and grab a book or, or whatever, you work on your homework, work on your, uh, you know, some, some of your, your, your day lit, uh, work stuff. You don't have the mindset to do it because what you need is sleep at that time. Yeah. And I mean, it can also lead to other sleep disturbances like nightmares. Mm -hmm. And there was a really interesting uh, study that just came out in the journal Sleep Medicine. And granted, it is one study and it's very small. But in the study, it showed that an average of 25 percent of the dreams experienced by people born blind are nightmares. And when you look at sighted people in nightmares, it accounts for only 6% of the dreams that they have. So that's, that's you know, a fourfold increase if you are born blind in this one study. Yeah, now I do want to want to drive home here that this is, this is not something that causes excessive trouble for those individuals. So don't think about any blind people in your life or just, you know, uh, that you may know and think, oh, my God, that, you know, that, that poor person, they're having to just live a nightmare every night, something to that effect. Uh because it's not like that. No, in fact, when the study participants who were born blind were told of this fourfold increase, they didn't even realize that it was disproportionate, and they did, they were fine for it. Yeah. And if you think about it, though, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, that's maybe because dreams and nightmares kind of help guide us in an odd way. Yeah, we've we've talked about uh, dreams and uh, nightmares in the past, and uh, I mean, you basically get down to this idea that the dreams are, of course, not just a screensaver mm-hmm. that like dreams and, and, and everything that's going on in your brain at night. It's about processing the information from the day. It's about processing your environment, your, your struggles, your stresses, the problems that you're facing and working them out in the brain. And sort of the, uh, the, the byproduct of all of that is the dreamscape that you end up inhabiting. Yeah. And let's drill down into the nitty gritty of this study. Cause I think it tells something mm-hmm. about that dreamscape. So people who are born blind, they didn't have dreams with visual content. That's one thing. And then that's where that 25% of their dreams became nightmares. Now, people who lost their sight later in life may have visual content in their dreams, although the longer they've been blind, the fewer dreams they had with visual content. Now, consider that 7% of their dreams were nightmares. And dreams of normally sighted people are based on the images and that they had, and they have nightmares only 6% of the time. Now, the trial subjects' nightmares were often related to threats experienced in everyday life. And one woman had nightmares about being run over by a car or getting into embarrassing social situations, like spilling a cup of coffee on her. And if I remember this correctly, I believe the woman was someone who had been blind since birth. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that comes to suggest that, again, that dreamscape is trying to work out all of the things that are happening to you emotionally and physically throughout the day. So there's this idea that increased nightmares and those blind from birth may be a way to remember information that's important to survival and welfare, particularly if you think about the more complex interactions with the physical world, like navigating traffic. If you don't have any sort of mental imagery of that Mm -hmm. uh, or visual 
imagery of that, then it's harder to create that blueprint. Right. So there's uh, there's more work that has to be done at night while the brain is sleeping to help process all that information. So it's just a you know it's a situation where there's there's a they live in a slightly different sense world than sighted individuals, and the way they interact with that sense world requires more processing in the night. It may be perhaps more fear-based processing as a way to inform the way that they're going to navigate uh, their, their world the next day. And again, the researchers found like zero pronounced anxiety or depression as a result of increased nightmares. Yeah, because even when you get don't get down into like really like fear with a capital of F, a lot of our navigation during the course of the day is ultimately fear-based. You know, just think of taking the train in the morning, which I often think about that in terms of uh, of people who who deal with blindness, because there are a number of uh, of of blind individuals who take the train. And mm-hmm. We see them uh, see them every day. But you, and, and you think about the uh, the effort of doing that, you're dealing with a, a this murderous piece of machinery that goes down the, the tracks that travels in this uh, in this pit. It has rats in it, mm-hmm. and uh, and you have to get there. You have to go up an elevator or, or take the stairs. And there's there there's so many different places and different opportunities for me to die in the course of uh, of my daily commute. And I have the benefit of sight to uh, to help me. I think it also uh, calls in you know to light this idea that we really do dream with all of our senses. Right, and those yeah. are all available to us. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a different sense world, uh, that's for sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about uh, being afraid of the dark and whether or not it has anything to do with insomnia. All right, we're back, and uh, this leads us inevitably to nyctophobia, to fear of the dark. Now, I have a toddler. He's not really at the point where he seems to have a fear of the dark yet um he's in the dark he just can't see but uh your your child is a is a bit older have you been through fear of the dark has no. that played into into her uh nope. experiences at all no hmm. uh not yet i mean she's five and a half and but i remember when i was um around her age that i was deathly afraid of some sort of monster lurking in the closet which would only become a fear of course when the lights were out when was the last time you slept with all the lights on? With, but with the not not by accident, but because you said I am going to leave a light on while I go to sleep. I can't remember. I mean, now I'm like Elvis, <laughs> and I have blackout shades, and you know, not not one little stream of light gets through. <laughs> what about you? Um, you know, I feel like there was a time in the last few years when my this was before the uh, my child came, and this uh, while my wife was out of town and I think I like I read something kind of spooky or watched something spooky and uh and without the normal sort of comfort zone of sharing a bed with someone I was like oh wow it's just me in here and I ended up sleeping at least part of the night with the light on because because having that other person there if something comes for you in the night either they'll hear it or they can only like really kill one of you at once effectively. So someone's going to survive. That's so funny because we've talked about outsourcing memory before. It's kind of mm. like outsourcing responsibility. Yeah, if a, if a murderer comes, then you know, uh, take care she'll of it. take care of it. But I do remember years before when I saw the ring for the first time, mm-hmm. I slept with. Uh, I definitely slept with the uh, lights on all night after seeing that. That one. Uh, that one scared me pretty bad. I remember uh, the book 
I Am Legend, which I got from you, Richard Matheson, mm-hmm. that terrified me. I had a hard time going to sleep. That's a good one. That's a good uh, Fear of the Dark book for sure because it has to deal with a character who, on top of all of his his angst and his problems and his uh, his alcoholism, when the sun goes down, dark things come out of uh, of the shadows and come for him and call for him. And uh, yeah, and, and he must resist sleep in yeah. order to survive. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an impressive book. Yeah, uh, not to mention his alcoholism too, which is yeah. that's not a good time to be an alcoholic when you've got the bloodthirsty at your door. Indeed. All right, so uh, yeah, nyctophobia. It is this uh, anxiety reaction which is characterized by an obsessive, irrational fear of the dark, and typically you see that in children, and you know they tend to grow out of it, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes yeah. people are still scared of the dark. And there's this idea that um, sleep disturbances could just be a fear of the dark. And there's a paper called, quote, Are People with Insomnia Afraid of the Dark? A pilot study from Ryerson University Sleep in Depression Lab. And it looks at a possible link between sleep disorders and the dark. Yeah, in this study, uh, nearly half of the students who reported having poor sleep uh, also reported a fear of the dark. And researchers confirmed this objectively by measuring blink responses to sudden noise bursts in light and dark surroundings. Good sleepers became accustomed to the noise burst, but the poor sleepers grew more uh, anticipatory when the lights went down. So you end up with a situation where the poor sleepers were were far more easy to startle in the dark compared to the good sleepers. Yeah, and the reason for all the eye theatrics, uh, according to Dr. Colleen Carney, uh, of Ryerson University is that if you're already a little anxious, the noise will make you flinch. And she said, we looked at eye reactions because it is one of the most robust ways to measure this anxiety. If you blink immediately after the noise, that means it startles you. Now, it's, it's interesting thing about this in terms of phobias, because as we recently discussed in our uh, fear of holes uh, episode, where we discuss phobias a bit, I mean, phobias come out of, uh, in, in many cases anyway, they stem from an, a, a realistic fear. And certainly, it's realistic, as we've discussed, to have some apprehension about the dark. Because at the very least, the dark is the environment where you will not see the hole you're about to step into. Yeah, it's again, it's that uncertainty, that right. stepping into the unknown. And so when you say, like, you, you know, a spouse is out of town, all of a sudden those, those noises in the dark become much larger in your mind than they possibly are. Mm-hmm. And um, you respond to them in a much more robust way. So the interesting thing about this study is that it got the researchers to thinking if some people with sleep disorders like insomnia, they have an active and untreated phobia of the dark, that treatment methods may need to be reevaluated. In other words, could the underlying cause of the insomnia be a phobia to the dark? So in other words, maybe we're better off treating the phobia if it's there rather than the uh, the inability to sleep. Yeah, and again, this is more like a hunch mm-hmm. of the study. So, you know, and they're saying that there's just there's some people who do not respond to behavioral or drug therapy. Therefore, maybe there's something else going on and it could relate to this. Yeah. It's certainly this one would be a good one to hear from uh, from listeners about because I know we have listeners. I know for a fact we have listeners uh, that have had problems with sleep. And uh, so, yeah, ask yourself, to what extent do you are you honestly um, apprehensive about the dark, and do you feel that plays into your scenario, or is your scenario definitely uh, not associated with that? Because I, I know I have a, a friend, or I have one friend in particular who has had always had been plagued by insomnia, mm-hmm. and I know he's not afraid of the dark kind of a guy. 
Uh, like, I think he just goes out and walks in the dark if he can't sleep. Yeah, and then, I mean, there could be other underlying mm-hmm. uh, conditions there. You could have an anxiety disorder. You could have PTSD. So yeah. it's not really um, that apparent that it could be just a, a more general phobia of the dark. Um, but if you are afraid of the dark, if it's something that bothers you, imagine being placed into this fictional room outfitted in the darkest material known to man. Whoa. You're, of course, talking about Vanta Black. That's right. It's so dark that any light that gets through the cracks will essentially vanish into this <laughs> material, which was created by the company Surrey Nanosystems. And we're talking about a dense forest of carbon nanotubes, single atom carbon tubes, 10,000 times thinner than a human hair that drink in 99.96% of all incoming radiation. Yeah, it's super black. It's infinite black. It's the, the gothiest material possible. Uh, and, uh, you're probably wondering, why would you, why would you create this? What's the point? Are you just trying to, to suck the soul right, right out of us? Well, uh, this, uh, the main applications for this material, uh, would uh, relate to sensitive optical equipment like telescopes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, a NASA Goddard team led by, uh, John Hagapane has been developing nanotube materials like this since, uh, 2007. Yeah, it's been described by one of the CEOs as um, deep, featureless black, even when folded and scrunched. He says, you expect to see the hills and all you can see, it, it's like black. It's like a hole, like there's nothing there. It looks so strange. So it's it's a wonderfully creepy concept and innovation. I love it. I would love to, to see it. I mean, uh, you put it on a, a gallery wall and let us stare into it. Because I, I, love, I love works of art that are just like stark. You know, white and dark, and uh, and you can sort of lose yourself in the the depths of the of the darkness. Well, and what I think is so interesting about it is that even when you're in the dark, you do perceive some sort of light. Usually, oh, yes. there's a source yeah. somewhere, so you're never fully in the dark. But here is a a possibility to create a room that would truly encase you in in total lightlessness. And what I was thinking about, um, we were talking about this earlier, is that we are now entering into fall and very soon it's going to be winter and already the days are getting shorter there's not as much sunlight available Mm -hmm. to us and so that's why this idea of darkness is so interesting because a lot of us start to turn inward right now and we start to see these sort of cracks in our psyche and and it can be sort of a depressive time for some people and then sometimes can be good um yeah why they plan to do the holidays during the the darkest period of the year (laughs) i never understood that can't we do it in a Happier month, we can at least go outside. <laughs> well, I thought I thought I could take comfort from this one aspect of it is that if you and not to make light of suffering, if if you find that this is a season that does make you turn inward mm-hmm. and become more serious about things or grapple with things, that um, that it's beneficial to us ultimately. And because again, those cracks in the psyche are important. And uh, if I may, I will read a quote from Leonard Cohen, which goes a little like this. There is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So keep that in mind as you light a candle at 5.30 p.m. when the sun goes down in your neck of the woods. And lock the doors. <laughs> Be sure to lock the doors because there are things out there in the night and they want to get to you. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, lots of good uh, content in there, I think. Uh, kind of a uh, just a, a dive into the... Uh, 
the idea of fearing the dark, our feelings about the dark, evolving as a as a, as a creature in this world of light and darkness. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of people have some feedback on that. In, in the meantime, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is where you'll find all the podcast episodes we've ever done, the videos, the blog posts, links out to our social media accounts. And uh, on each and every podcast we're putting out these days, you know, we're making a point to, to have a podcast landing page. It's going to have some cool art. It's going to have some links to other related podcasts. It's going to, if there are some outside materials of, of, of note, we're going to link to that. Sometimes we'll have a gallery to go along with the episode, and we'll have a link to that, of course. So so if you haven't gone to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, uh, do yourselves a favor. Uh, go check it out. Yeah, there's lots of photos of fully clothed men. Just wink, wink. <laughs> okay. You're not going to find that in a lot of places. Okay. Right. I try now. I try to include lots of photos of, of fully dressed women too. I, I keep it. I keep it even. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. we get some skin. Sometimes not. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they're animals. Sometimes they're plants. I want our plant listeners to feel included. Indeed. Um, all right. And uh, if you've got some ideas on this percolating, please do send them to us. You can do that by sending an email to blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 